0: So Isaiah chapter 55, and I'm going to read from verse 1. And it says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good. And your soul will delight in the richest of fear. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." his word and pray again that he will bring us understanding and speak to each of our hearts through that word. Let's come and pray. Father we pray again this morning that you will help us to have an understanding of the the reality of Christmas. That this wasn't just a a day that, that came out of nowhere and a day that means little except for just um, food and parties and being with family. Lord, help us to see that Christmas is part of your eternal plan. It's part of your plan for our lives, that in Christmas, all our lives find meaning and purpose. So, Lord, speak to us about meaning and purpose now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I usually get into a little bit of trouble uh, around this time of the year. Maybe I should say a little bit of extra trouble. But anyway, because I tend to to start thinking about and celebrating Advent, the Christmas season, about a week later than the official church calendar. And Elaine, who's a, a lover of Advent, of the whole leading to Christmas as I am, she sometimes gets a wee bit exasperated by this. But I want to say, I honestly don't do this out of any arrogance it's not because i think i know better in the whole history of the church rather i, I do this because over the years i've learned that there's a, a wide divergence of opinion within the church about christmas not about the the actual birth of christ but rather about the the whole christmas event as it's now become so to avoid those people who feel like that gnashing their teeth every time a Christmas card was announced as Christmas draws near, well I've tended to kind of maybe shorten slightly what I see as the Christmas season. But you know all of this got me thinking about the wide variety of, of attitudes and outlooks that there are around Christmas and there's a story I read some time ago, I think I've shared it with some of you before, but for me it highlights something of this. It's a story of two young boys, John and Tom, who, though they were brothers, were very different in nature and outlook. John, you see, was a a pessimist and Tom an optimist. And it was a matter of concern to their parents that they were so different in this, this way and, and their nature. So wanting to, to try and redress the balance, they decided on Christmas Eve to fill John's stocking full of fruit and sweets and money and all the other kind of good things that children will hope for and love to get in a Christmas stocking. And at the foot of Tom's stocking, though, all they put in was some horse manure. So for any kids who are away, if you think your parents are strange, hey. Anyway, the following morning, they eagerly, they were lying there in bed, eagerly awaiting the boys' reactions. John appears first, but he's not all smiles as they'd hoped and expected. The tangerines had stones, the sweets weren't the right kind that he really liked, and there just wasn't nearly enough money to buy what he wanted. When Tom appeared, though, to their great surprise, he was smiling. And he said, I haven't seen it yet but I'm sure I've got a pony. <laughs> <laughs> now that's the contrasting attitudes of two children towards Christmas. But when you move towards adults, you get the same, I think, kind of range of extremes. From the is bar humbug to I wish I, it could be Christmas every day. A, with a, vast array, with a vast array of alternatives in between But you know, before I became a Christian do you know what I found most difficult about Christmas? Seeing just where Jesus fitted in I remember just asking myself the, the question Why were we and, and why are we celebrating the birth of a man Who died now around 2,000 years ago? And what possible relevance can this man, can his life or his death have for life, for my life today? That was my big question, and I'm sure it still is a big question for many people. Why do we make such a big fuss every year about Jesus? And of course, the answer some have, have actually come up with today is that, is that we, we shouldn't, that we don't actually need Jesus anymore, that we're now so advanced and so capable that that we don't need God anymore, either at Christmas or at any other time. So we've now got the, I think, ridiculous modern phenomena of a society that more and more is trying to celebrate a Christless Christmas. But Isaiah here, he provides a different answer for us regarding the relevance of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that here in words that were written 750 years before Christ's birth. Words that prophesy, words that anticipate his coming. Here he tells us just where Jesus Christ fits into life, where he wants to fit into our life, and what he can mean for our life. And we're going to look now at at what he has to say, beginning, first of all, by seeing what he has to say about our problem. And it's fairly obvious here that though Isaiah talks about things like hunger and thirst, yet that he doesn't see our problem as being primarily physical, but rather that he sees these things and that they're put here as a picture of the deeper inner problems of men and women. But what does he say in verse 2? He says, listen, listen, Listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the riches of fear. Give ear, and come to me, that your soul might live. You see, Isaiah sees our real problem as being a problem of the soul, a problem of the heart. And you know, I hear the same kind of thing, though often differently expressed, but I hear the same kind of thinking coming back to me again and again from the pages sometimes, the newspaper, from the television screen, you know, as you look around the internet and conversations that I have sometimes with people, you get that, that people sense that there's something missing in life, something missing from deep within them. They've got a yearning for real, deep, lasting, satisfaction and fulfillment for life to mean something, but they don't know where to look. They don't know where that can be found. And so some then decide that the secret is security, perhaps primarily financial security, and that if only they had the right job with the right income, if only they had the the right connections that can so often lead to these things in life, if only that that would be it, I would be made. I'd then be happy and content with my lot. I mean, I think that was what was behind, was it not, a lot of the hysteria that surrounded the the National Lottery when it was first launched. That was what was kind of being projected out through the advertising, that if only you win this, all your worries, all your troubles will instantly disappear. Your life that perhaps now seems to be falling apart is going to miraculously become whole. But surely now those optimistic early days have gone. Surely they have, because there have been so many stories of lives and relationships that have been devastated after winning the lottery. Not made better, but made far worse. Why not that long ago? Britain's youngest lottery millionaire, Jane Park, from Edinburgh, she actually threatened to take the lottery to court for destroying her life by giving her a million pounds. And just within the the last few weeks, David Cassidy died, aged 67, and I'm reading a wee bit about this, and this must have passed me by, but in the 1970s, as a a young man, he was the star of one of the most popular television shows on television then, The Partridge Family, and he later became one of the most popular pop stars of the the 1970s, and a bit on. And even until recently, he was doing Las Vegas stuff. He was a, a teen heartthrob, and he was a very wealthy, became a very wealthy young man. But you know, by the time he died, he had two broken marriages, he'd been bankrupt, and he was an alcoholic. And his final words to his daughter were, so much wasted time. And you see, this is a man who had so much. This is a man who lived the life that so many people dream of. Somebody who is the singing goes, somebody who seemed to have it all, and yet all failed to satisfy him. All failed to fill his life. He died an unhappy, hurting, unfulfilled man. But someone might want to come back here that the the problem with a man like this is that he didn't have the basics, though, right in his life. But get the basics right, particularly in this, get your personal relationships right, and that will give you the foundation for a happy and fulfilled life. You know, I read just a, a week or so ago about a woman who seemed to have the perfect family life. She had a caring husband, two children, who had grown into adulthood, fairly trouble-free, no money problems. And she was supposed to be going on holiday with them, but she never appeared at the airport. And I don't know what happened, but they kind of hoped that they'd find out, she joined them later. But when they landed at their destination, they got a text message. And what it told them was, that she'd just moved into a flat that she'd set up secretly, and that she no longer wanted to be defined as being a wife and a mother. She just wanted to be her own person again. You know, even if we do have the, the happiest of family lives, that can still be a pretty precarious foundation on which to build our ultimate hopes and dreams. I remember clearly, taken a service a, a number of years ago, a funeral service for a lovely little boy who'd been an integral part of a very, very happy family. His death, though, set off a chain of events that led to his parents' marriage falling apart, to that family falling apart. So while personal relationships are so important, while happy marriages and strong families do bring so much joy into life and are the building block in a stable and secure society. Yet these things, good as they are, as the ultimate source of satisfaction and of life fulfillment, they can be a flimsy foundation. For they can. They can be taken away in an instant. We need something deeper. We need something far more substantial to be that key that holds our life together. And you know, I believe that we've reached the, the stage in our world, in our society today, where many people actually know this. People know that these things fail, or maybe have failed, for them to meet the deepest yearnings of their heart. And people who have all these things, all the good things this world has to offer, people in that situation still today find that they don't satisfy. Or people who have few or none of these things and who see little chance of getting them. They don't think as they look around that even if they did, they, they would make a difference. People of these kinds, differing kinds of all sorts of types, they're now looking in other directions. So many people, often destructive directions, to try and meet that hidden hunger within them, to try and meet. That kind of insatiable thirst that they feel constantly in life. So they maybe try drink or drugs or relationship after relationship. But it doesn't work. It doesn't. Maybe for a little while, it does. Maybe for a moment of time, it can seem to. But ultimately, none of these things work. Because we wake up in the morning, the high is gone, or a person leaves, or we tire. Of them And that emptiness, that void within us grows and grows. That's our problem. As human beings, people, that we have an emptiness inside, a yearning, a hunger and thirst. And we've got to hear in our heart and try as we might, we cannot fill it. We cannot satisfy it. We cannot meet it. We cannot bring that hunger to an end. That's our problem we'll move on to look at God's promise. And God's promise is that he will meet the hunger that we feel, that he will satisfy that thirst, that he will fill that emptiness within. For what he tells us is that at the root of it and underneath all the camouflage that we put around and self-deception, what God tells us is that actually our real problem is a spiritual problem. It's not about our need for security, financial or otherwise. It's not about our need for that elusive, perfect human relationship or relationships. No, because while these might be problems for us, and while they might be a symptom of our problem, yet God tells us these are not our real root problem. For what the Lord tells us is that our problem is spiritual. It's to do with what we are as men and women and what that then means to our relationship that we should have before all others with our God. For you see, what this passage here tells us is that we are sinful and we need salvation. And that it's this sin that acts as the great barrier that, to having our spiritual needs met. And that it's in this sin, therefore, that our real problems lie. Verse 7 here lays lays this in the beginning of the remedy for it out before as It says there, let the wicked forsake his own way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Turn to our God for he will freely pardon. You see, man, mankind, people, using that as a blanket term, for the whole of humanity. Mankind is wicked, it says, in his heart and his deeds, his habits and his deeds, his ways. And also in his plans and desires, in his thoughts. And this the Bible says, because what's said here is underlined throughout the rest of the Bible. This has been true of all men, of all humanity, since Adam. Since that first sin, Mankind is at a heart and a mind inclined to sin. We've been at heart, in mind, rebellious against God and his will and purposes. As Romans 3, 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of it, all of us, since that time, since that first sin at the beginning of time, we have by our own rebellious disobedience by our following in Adam's footsteps. We've all fallen short of the glory. That is, we've fallen short of the moral and spiritual perfection that originally God created us with the capacity for. And the only way now that this can be dealt with is if we do what it goes on to say here. That is, if we repent, if we turn from our sin and turn back to God to live again, For his glory, as it says in verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. But although this is is true from the human perspective, this is all that we've got to do to find salvation, to get back on track and into relationship with God. Yet God has to do far more. God has to give far more. And that's what we're going to look at next. At God's provision. What God does. And God's provision is quite simply Jesus. He looked forward to, as I've said, many centuries before his actual coming. Jesus anticipated. For who else could the words in verse four refer to? other than Jesus. Who else? See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you knew not and nations that you do not know will hasten to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. For he has endowed you with splendor. These words can only refer to Jesus. Jesus, who took salvation that once was known only by Israel, that was perverted and distorted by Israel, who took salvation and who offered that salvation to all men, to all nations, to those who prior to Jesus, who did not know God and were not known by him, it says, at least not known in the sense of a personal saving relationship. But then verse 3 here traces all this even further back because it talks there of an everlasting covenant of my faithful love promised to David. Now what this is talking about is is about God's promise, God's covenant to save from mankind a people for himself. Not because they're worthy but because of his love. You see that was the promise given right back in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 15.5, Fifteen five, the promise that was first given to Abraham, a promise later that was confirmed to Moses in Exodus two twenty four, and then that finally that was repeated to David in Second Samuel seven sixteen. With this time, the further promise that this promise given by God would ultimately be fulfilled by one of David's line, the one of David's line would be the Messiah, the deliverer, born of him. But how does Jesus do this, though? How does he deal with the sin that separates us from God? How does does he make it possible for that emptiness within us to actually be filled with God's love? You know, in one way it's so simple, and yet it's also so wonderful and so incredibly costly. In that Jesus dealt with our sin by, as a man, taking our place on that cross. And by, as God, by there, paying that price that we could never pay, of a perfect, sinless, holy life given for us. And so by doing that, dealing with the sin that separates us from God and making it possible from that moment as we put our faith in him, making it possible for us to know the love and the life and the power of God, to know that in our lives right now and to know it perfectly in the life to come. So you see, Jesus is God's provision for us. He's God's gift to each one of us at Christmas. Because he is the one who makes it possible for the very deepest needs of our lives to be met. We're going to finish by looking finally at God's priority. And God's priority is that we get our lives right with him. And that we do it right now. We do it now. Notice what he says at the very beginning here. He says, come, come. He says, come to me. Come because I want to meet the needs of your life. Come because I want to fill your emptiness. Come because I want to end that sense of lostness and loneliness. So come to me and come now. Don't wait till you think you're ready. Don't wait till you think you're worthy because that time will never come. That will never happen. No, rather, come now. And accept what I offer to you freely in my grace, by my love. And then this sense of urgency is is emphasized that bit more as we're told. Verse 6. To seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Basically saying here that now is the day of salvation. That this is the day of grace when God offers us new life in Christ. But that day may not be with us for long. And if that day ends, and if we're then found without Christ, then we are lost and separate from God for all eternity. So the question is, is then the Lord speaking to you today? Is he speaking to you? For it says here in verse 11 that his Lord will not return to him empty. Now, what I believe that means, it means that every time that God's word is preached, particularly the the word that offers God's life and salvation through Christ, what that means is that every time that word is preached, that that word finds a home in someone's heart. There's someone who knows, hey, this is God speaking to me. Now, we might resist it. We might not yield to it. But we know in our hearts, that it's us God is calling to. That it's our need he wants to meet. It's our hunger, our thirst, that he wants to satisfy. And so he calls. And he is calling. Come. Come. Is it you that he's calling today? Is it you that the Lord is speaking to? Is it you that he wants this to be the Christmas of all Christmases as you receive the gift of life through Jesus? Do you want to get your life sorted out with God? Then let me tell you that this is the biggest and the most important and the most glorious and yet the costliest decision that you can ever make in life. And yet at the same time, there's also a sense in which it's as easy as A, B, C. And D, for there is A, if you want to get right with God, there's A, there's something to admit, and that is that you're a sinner, and therefore fall short of God and are separated from him. Then there's B, something to believe, to believe that God in Christ, your Savior and Lord, that he has done everything that is necessary for you to be brought back to him. Also, there's C, there's something to consider. And we need to consider what it will cost you to be a disciple of Christ. For Jesus Christ is Lord, and you've got to submit your life. You've got to give your life to him as Lord. And finally, there's D. There is something to do. That is, you've got something to do. To reach out in faith today and take that <laughs> gift that God has offers. And that's where we have to finish. Because it's you who's got to do It's you who's got to reach out by faith and take hold of that gift of Jesus. Take hold of all that God has for you in Jesus Christ. Let's come and let's pray together. Father, we come before you, come before your word and we just Bow down again before the authority of that word. And we see here through this word that that Jesus Christ was prophesied long before he came. Your plan was to send us a saviour in Christ. And today it is your will to fill us to the full. To give us life in all its richness and fullness through Jesus. Father, help us to reach out by faith and to take hold, to do something today, to take hold by faith of all you have done for us. Lord, give us the courage. Give us the wisdom. Give us the grace that we need to do that and to do it now. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.